Hi guys and welcome to this edition of How to Wow, starring Catlin Moran and brought to you by M&S Plant Kitchen. M&S Plant Kitchen launched in 2019 when their first vegan-friendly range took the meat-free world by storm. Exactly. And now, my friends, there are 100 plant kitchen products to choose from, which is excellent news for my family. As back in March, my wife, Tequila Tash, and I decided to go all in plant-based. We were in Los Angeles running our very own made-up marathon as we were due to run the Tokyo Marathon, which was cancelled due to, well, you know what. But we'd done the training, I'd booked the time off work, and we had arranged, we had arranged extensive international childcare. You see, the thing is, eating plant-based in California has traditionally been much more of a thing than here in the UK. But that's all changing, and changing at a pace. Da-da-da! Introducing the M&S Plant Kitchen. No chicken nuggets. They look like chicken. They smell like chicken. They're finger-licking like chicken, and they taste like chicken. At least as far as I can remember. It's been a while. But hey, don't take my word for it. Cut to my second eldest son, Eli, in the Evans plant kitchen. Eli, what's going on with the no chicken nuggets? Oh, they look like chicken, they smell like chicken, and they taste like chicken. Oh, they must be chicken. Oh, no, they're not chicken. Told you. And he's had actual chicken a lot more recently than me. But that story's for another day. Sticking with the no chuck chuck chicken now, there's also the delicious, and I mean mouth-meltingly delicious No Chicken Kiev. M&S Plant Kitchen's most successful vegan launch ever, with one being sold every four minutes. There's probably one outside your window right now. Take a look. Largely because of their indulgent garlic filling waiting to explode in your mouth underneath that coating of crunchy golden breadcrumbs. I want one now. And then there's the kiddies' favourite plant kitchen cauliflower popcorn, which we paid our kids in to do this. Plant kitchen! I think it could be a hit. Other scrummy treats include PK posh hot dogs, PK green Thai curry, and the to die for PK coleslaw salad, the first ever vegan coleslaw to hit supermarket shelves in the UK. Wow! Talking of wow, it's time now to How to Wow. Thank you, MNS Plant Kitchen, for helping make this show happen. I don't really know what to call this podcast, Catelyn. Um, I was thinking, what if Chris Evans, what if with Catelyn Moran? What if Crowded House hadn't have formed? Then I would not have got married and my children wouldn't exist. Yeah, we, so me and my husband were both working at Melody Maker, the cool rock magazine, and uh, all the other people there were into the cool bands. And uh, me and my husband's biggest secret that we had to keep from the cool men was that we liked Crowded House. And that was how we bonded. I missed my last train home to Wolverhampton. And he said, you can come and sleep in my flat. And then we were on the tube on the way to his house and he went, I've got a really big secret to tell you. And I was like, oh no, is it that you're a sex case murderer? Because that will be bad, but I will still need to sleep at your house because I have no where else to go and he went my secret is I love Crowded House and I was like me too and that was kind of the moment where we got married really it was all kind of 
<laughs> were you dating at all or were you literally staying at his house? No, it was literally he'd, he'd seen that I was a 16-year-old girl who'd missed her last train back to Wolverhampton and that I would be in terrible trouble otherwise. And he took me back to his flat. He put me in his bed. He had a Victorian nightgown that he used to wear that he gave to me, gave me his toothbrush. <laughs> and in the morning he left and he'd left a uh, croissant in a bag that he'd bought from a corner shop and a bottle of Tropicana orange juice. Two of the... I'd never seen these fancy things. I had never seen a croissant and I had never seen freshly squeezed orange juice. They do not have them in Wolverhampton. And um, so, yeah, he was. I was like, wow, this guy's living the high life. <laughs> this guy's classy. But it's funny because your writing is not full of fury, but they're full of fire. That could be fury, but you choose to sort of um, turn it into something else via your sort of uh, genius alchemy. But your life is beautiful. You know, even that moment there, it's, it's beautifully tranquil. It's, it's quite balanced. You know, that was a balanced moment between two very balanced people in, in the eye of a different world that they sort of romanticised about inhabiting and did, in fact, inhabit, but wasn't really that. Well, the thing is, anger is not the destination, is it? Like, kind of, once you get your head around what anger is, anger is, as the punk said, an energy. You don't, that's not what you end on. You end anger, you feel anger, and then you have to turn it into something else. You can't simply be angry. So any anger that I've ever had, you need to process it and work out what it is and then just use it as an energy. Because if you can, you see this all the time on social media. This is what's happening on social media all the time. Two groups of really angry, hurt people are shouting at each other and neither is listening to each other. They're just responding to the emotion in each other's voices. They're not actually listening to what the other one is saying. And when you know that anger is fear brought to the boil, Everyone who's angry is scared. That's why they're angry. It's hot fear. So you just have to go, well, why is, why is this person scared? Let me talk to them about what they're scared about. Let's get past the anger bit and actually start talking in words about what the problem is. So the anger, the shouty, the binary shouty shouty of, of Twitter and other things like that now, um, this, this polarised environment which some people um, live in or are sort of um, polluted or contaminated by is like the first session uh, at uh, of, of psychotherapy yes. um, where you bring in your story and you talk it out and you say that and that's why that's why therapists are so quiet because they have to let you offload that bit and that's why Big Brother works so well and that's why The Jungle works so well because people run out of their story yes. and that's why people often hawk around their story have lots of different friends because they only have one act so for it to work they have to do a longer tour around more cities as opposed to a longer play in the one city yeah and don't and, and with when you're talking to someone who's emotional you have to wait till they stop being emotional before you can actually start talking to them and that's a huge thing that I've learned over the last couple of years I didn't know my daughter was very ill for a couple of years she had an eating disorder which I've written about in the book and for the first two years that she was ill because she was sad, I couldn't bear her to be sad. I can't deal with sadness. So I would keep trying to jolly her out of it. I just turned into a clown. It was like, let's play buckaroo and we'll buy two pet rats and train them and we'll make life delightful. And it was only when I realised that what I needed to sit down and do was sit with her and go, I can see you're sad. I'm not scared of that. I will sit with you until you stop being sad. It's okay. I'm with you. And that was the biggest lesson that I've learned in my life. Like that was the one emotion I was terrified of, other people's sadness. So you can't deal with sadness or you couldn't and now you can. Yes. Now I'm not scared of it because I know it passes. Like kind of, I thought that if you got, if you were sad for 10 minutes, it might stay in you forever. And and as soon as someone started to come down with sadness, you had to quickly just scare it out of them or run away from it. And now I know that you will have sadness and it will pass through you. And then it will go out the other side. You are the mountain. The sadness is the cloud that passes over you. But I 
Previously, that is not how I thought about it. I thought it was an infectious disease. And once one person in the house is sad, everybody would get sadness. Get that completely. Does, does this mean, though, you can cope with your daughter's sadness and other people's sadness, but not your own still? Or is that the next station on the on the line? I've just decided never to be sad. I'm happy to help all the other sad people. But the, I mean, I, I, I was reading my diaries when I was 13 last week, and it's just because I was raised on musicals. I didn't go to school. I was taught at home. So I didn't have any friends, so I didn't meet any human beings. The only human beings I was seeing were in films, and all the films that I watched were classic 1950s MGM musicals in which Judy Garland plays uh, uh, a girl who's always described as ugly, despite being Judy Garland, and a bit weird and a bit plain, and uh, she has to get through life by like being incredible at dancing and singing and always being cheerful. So that was how I learned to be a human woman, by watching Judy Garland being cheerful at all times. What if you hadn't left school at the age of 11? Ah, that's a weird one. I'd won, I'd passed the 11 plus in my school and I was sent to the local grammar school and I was there for six weeks. Um, and I was so remorselessly bullied because we were a hippie family and I didn't have a coat at the time. I was using a dressing gown. Um, and it was made very clear to me that things would be very difficult for me being a scruffy uh, council estate kid. So, uh, so yeah, I got to Harvest Festival and I just went to my parents like, can we be taught at home? And they were like, yeah, go for it. So I don't know. I think I would have been really bullied and really upset and unhappy. I think a lot of the reason why I have a very unusual body confidence for a woman and a woman of my age and a woman of my body. Um, and I think a lot of it was because I wasn't at school and I've never worked in an office, so I've never had people judging me. I've just always been alone with my body going, well, this is working. These legs are functional. <laughs> this is, I can get on with this. This is good. We've got a good relationship here. Thanks, guys. But it wasn't homeschooling. It was self-schooling, wasn't it? You thought it was going to be homeschooling, but it became self-schooling and the best education you could have wished for. Well, this is the thing. There are two types of homeschoolers. There's the ones who take their kids out of school because they think they could be educated more at home. They're like, if we went on a walk or through the woods, we could talk about geology and geography and you know the stars and the nature and the history of this area and the mines that are underneath us and we will teach them more if they leave school. That's the homeschooling we're going to do. That's not the homeschooling my parents did. They were of the second group, which was like, we can't be asked to get you all in pants and socks and uniforms every morning, so we're going to stay at home. And I would say their parenting style wasn't mammalian. Mammals raise young in a caring way and sort of nurture them until adulthood. I would say they were more like fish. Like the salmon, they spawned magnificently, they had eight children, and then they just swam away, <laughs> just left us to get on with it. But if you're in a gang of eight kids, you kind of rule the house. So, like, we never, even though it was a very tiny crowded house, we never really saw our parents. It was just all of us together being funny, watching musicals, inventing the cheese lollipop, which is a lump of cheese on a fork that you lick. Because uh, <laughs> it lasts longer if you lick it. <laughs> That's so funny. Because there were eight of you. Second yes. mention of Crowded House, by the way. Though. I know, right? Um, so there were eight of you. And like you say, you know, uh, the, the less chance there is of the young surviving, the more eggs the, the, the mum has to have. Mm. Is, that what, is that what you're comparing? It was literally to? that. It was like, just pump out as many kids as we can and see how many stick. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and thankfully, we all survived. <laughs> well, congratulations. Well done. Thank you. Goodbye. Um, yeah, but you're, like, you, you, you're the dream kid because... You know, you then you then find yourself not at school. Um, you know, you were feared of, you were quite rightly frightened of being bullied, and that would prob probably have happened. So you rescued yourself, or you were rescued uh, by by fate and fortune. Um, but then, you know, there's the there's the there's the potential of homeschooling, but it doesn't happen. So you self school, but you're like the best self schooler in the world. So where was the drive? Where did the drive come from to disappear? You know, 
in the, the great works of literature, the, the, the absolute, the, all the classics, all, all the books you could get your hands on. I mean, where does that... Parents, you're a parent. You dream, you dream for that for your kid, don't you? Well, I mean, it's a six-pronged argument, and I'll just do the first two points. Uh, the first one is all kids. So if you take your kids out of school, if you homeschool them, there's, there's various organisations that you can join, and they talk about the process of de-schooling. So for the first couple of months when you take your kids out of school, they are like, it's the holidays. Yay, no regulations. I get to do what I want. And they'll just play and muck about and they won't want to do anything. And then suddenly at some point, usually by six months, the natural urges that children have that have been suppressed at school come back out again, which is curiosity. Like any young of any animal just wants to learn stuff. They're curious. That's what they do. They're poking sticks in holes and, you know, you want to learn about the world. And that urge gets suppressed when you're at school because you're having to do it and you're having to learn about things you just don't care about. And that will kill your curiosity and your drive. Um, whereas if you are allowed to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, kids, you know, will suddenly stay up until three o'clock in the morning, you know, building a rocket or, you know, researching how trees grow or being obsessed about pandas or something. Thing. As soon as they don't have to learn, they will want to start learning. And what they will do is they will only do the stuff that they like, which to me makes sense. I think if you know that you're bad at maths and you know that your future career is not going to involve maths, you shouldn't have to go to school and do a subject in which you feel like an absolute failure every day. In the same way that, you know, kids who are like, you know, who aren't good at school at all, but are really great at sport will spend all of their school years feeling like a thick failure when they could be an astonishing athlete and go to do something incredible somewhere else. I mean, particularly at the age of 11, because my, my eldest boy now, he's 11. And to be honest, he's done. You yeah. know, he, unless the things he's going to be taught now, he's going to be required to remember up until um, and during the point of whatever the next exam is. But if we have he's, exams, he's, but he's sort of learned everything that he needs to learn. Totally. And so, so in a way, you know, from that point of view, it's not surprising that you've gone on to to achieve the things you have. But when lockdown happened in March, I mean, you must have been way ahead of the game here. You you think, well, I've been here before. I know what's going to happen next. Oh well, especially as my parents were kind of they were they kind of believed in the apocalypse. They were hippies. It was the nuclear era, so the talk was constantly of what would happen when society broke down, um, or the bomb dropped, and we would be fighting in the streets for the last rat. So when the lockdown happened and we were all suddenly in the house and it looks like it's the end of the world, that was literally the atmosphere that I was brought up in at home. So I was like, I know how to do this. I'd already got all my supplies in the cupboard. I'd already worked out where I was going to go to the mountains to survive. So I was like, welcome to my, my childhood reality. But you did have your own troubles. So the troubles that you experienced with your daughter, which you write about very candidly in the book, with her permission. In fact, yes. she suggested it, didn't she? That's, it's very important. Um, I want, obviously, as a writer, you want to write about things that are problems that you found solutions to, because I like to be a useful writer. So when she was ill, and now she's thankfully completely recovered, I did want to write about it. But it was something that she brought up. And she pointed out very rightly that for her generation, mental illness and eating disorders aren't seen as shameful. They talk about it all the time. They're very open about it. But for my generation, the parents of these kids, we were brought up in an era where these things were just not talked about or they were stigmatised or you would be made to feel guilty if your children had it. And so we are not useful as parents when our children get ill because we think it's our fault. We're dealing with our guilt and our trauma. And as a consequence, I did so many unuseful things in the first two years of her illness. And having learnt the way to help children who were sad and anxious and depressed, I wanted to put it in the book and she told me, put it in the book so that other parents don't make the mistakes you did because you were, frankly, annoying and useless to me <laughs> as a mother for the first two years of my illness. So, so yeah, so she's she's very, you know, it's, it's a brilliant gift that she has given me to be able to share with other people that that we can talk about this and try and get rid of some of the stigma around it. Do you think the the, the 20 noughties and the 20 teens and now the 2020s are in a way a bit like a sort of a, a sort of second 60s? Because I do feel like there's been an incubation period and the and you know kids now you know middles now 
adults now, um, middle-aged people now, we seem seem to be having a different experience, or does every generation think that? But I think collectively, this is it is such a different world that it's like there's been a war, not because of COVID necessarily, not because of Brexit necessarily, not because of Trump necessarily, but the, it seems to something like World War II has happened invisibly without us knowing, and we are we're all changing, but. Because there hasn't been a war, there hasn't been a natural end for a new beginning. Yes. Well, it's weird. So our children's lives are so incomparably different to ours in many ways that they they seem culturally, you know, my kids listen to all the Britpop stuff in the 90s, like kind of they know their 90s very well. But the world that they've been brought from is so different to ours, hyper communicative, you know, hyper connected online all the time. And I think our generation, me and you, we feel scared about how the world's changed at the moment. And there's a trope that I notice in people of our generation where we go, the kids will sort this out. Like the kids are going to sort, the kids are amazing. We were like, the kids are so incredible. They will sort out global warming. They communicate with each other. They can run proper campaigns. They will change politics and make it more inclusive and more loving. They're going to sort out this environmental crisis. It's all going to be about the kids. Greta Thunberg, Emma Gonzalez. And we think we're paying them a compliment when we say this. And we think we're saying to them, well, you'll be able to sort this mess out. Don't be scared. That's not a compliment to kids. Because what kids are hearing is mummy and daddy are scared and they can't sort it out. We're going to have to get the kids to sort it out. And that's wrong. We think we're paying them a compliment when we say this, but we're not. We have to be able to say to them, we're going to be here sorting this stuff out. Mummy and daddy will take care of this. We can't, I get, you know, until very recently in my head, I was like, yeah, but in 20 years, there'll be an amazing generation. They'll sort everything out. They shouldn't be raised in that atmosphere. They've yeah. got to think that we're going to sort it out. It's not a compliment. I wonder if we're heading for a punk moment because punk really helped us out in the 70s. You know, um, 1976, 77, get, get, got us to the 80s. And then Thatcher came, of course. And But the, the world changed the end of the Cold War. But you had the sort of, again, you had the post-World War II uh, 60s, not 50s, funny enough. That was like a transition, but that's like the, the, the echoes of the guns and the bombs could still be heard and still be felt, and austerity was still there and rationing was still there. But then you had the sort of the, the brand new dawn of, of free love, psychedelia, and then you had people who stayed at the party too long, which became the 70s, and then punk came and snapped us out of that. <laughs> I wonder if, if, we're, if there's a, a sort of invisible punk moment about to explode. The thing is, it's already happened. We're old and white, so we haven't noticed it, but grime in this country is like the first proper working-class really? art form, and those artists, the clever thing they did is they don't work inside the industry. They've all formed their own record labels. Like So for the first time ever, musicians are totally in charge. In a way, the far super, um, surpasses punk. They don't and signed to major labels. They run their own businesses. They run their own PR schemes. And then you get someone like Stormzy setting up these scholarships and sending black kids to university, setting up a publishing imprint so that they can publish authors of colour. Like that, that is punk. That's happening. That's a completely alternate system that they've come up with there. And because we're older and whiter, we tend not to notice it, but it's already happening there. It's there. But didn't punk embrace, didn't it crack everything? Was it such a big sledgehammer that it cracked everything that everybody heard about it? The thing is, though, if you go back and look at it, it happened in London. And then like five years later, right. it had kind of made it to Manchester and you'd have like your token punks. And it had turned into post-punk by then. And then yep. it sort of turned into the, the big thing about punk was that it turned then into the alternative scene which got much bigger and all those alternative labels of Manchester and Manchester and Creation yeah. and 4AD um, Factory but like actual punk like the amount of people who were actually punks at the beginning of the punk thing is very very small and yeah. it was a mainly London based we all thing. knew one we, we knew where they were we saw them walking past or down the high street on a Saturday afternoon but you're quite right there were more heavy rockers still. there's more, more Van Halen Sammy Hagar fans around right right <laughs> 
so funny. Yeah, I mean, here's me talking to you about punk. You worked on the Melody Maker. Uh, wow, 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 wow. So there's always this this big conflict between the Melody Maker and the NME. Yes. Um, and would it be right to say that the the enemy would would it be cooler to work on the NME and more sort of uh, artistic to work on Melody? Melody Maker just sounds softer. It sounds more mellifluous than than the NME. Well, the thing is, it depended obviously which newspaper you work for. So we thought the NME were like boring square, like you know, like probably some of them owned a car and might have savings. Like they were kind of like, they were a bit more together. They would go on and get jobs in radio and TV. They'd become scriptwriters and stuff. Whereas we were all, it was very much like the bar in the cantina in Star Wars. That was kind of who was at Melody Maker at the time. It was just people who would not have fitted in anywhere else. Um, and we were more, uh, we had higher aesthetics. Uh, we had more violent language. We were kind of, we were we were the kind of outsider, sort of Baudelarian rebels, kind of very Byronic. It was very kind of performative. Whereas the enemy people, we were like, oh, look at these squares. And then they would go on and get great jobs. And, and we wouldn't. <laughs> it's funny though, isn't it? Because if you imagine two T-shirts, one for the NME, you know, the NME. It's very sort of um, uh, uh, geometric, isn't it? The NME. And the Melody Maker would be more bubble writing and rubber soul, wouldn't it? And that kind of free love vibe, that more sort of fluid fluidity. But it was the Musicians magazine. That was how it started out. So it was kind of more sort of into the musicians and experimental music than NME was. But the funny thing was that NME and Melody Maker, the two bastions of sort of indie rock cool, and they were both in the same building just on the South Bank down here. Um, and it was a 26th floor building and we were above what bike and below what horse. So like, <laughs> some of these <laughs> so all these cool kids would be turning up. And my first day at work, because I was so into I'd never been to the building, so I just thought it was going to be like a pub or Valhalla. So I turned up at 16. I know I'm going to be in a room full of grown-up cool boys. Um, so I turned up with a bottle of Southern Comfort and a packet of fags I'd never smoked. And it was an 11 o'clock editorial meeting, and I put the bottle down on the table. I was like, who's doing shots? And then lit a fag. Cigarette was in my mouth the wrong way around. And they were all just staring at this child in a hat with a bottle of booze and smoking a fag the wrong way around, going, what have we hired? Like, what is going on here? Because I thought that was how you were a grown-up. I had no other information. What was your first um, starstruck moment at Melody Maker? Oh, God, what, meeting uh, pop stars? Somebody walking in the office or somebody bumping into somebody in the street, you know, you're fresh down from the Midlands. Well, I went straight into just interviewing because I'd also, by this point, even though I was working at Melody Maker and I was very lowly at Melody Maker, it was quite a weird dissonance. I had, all, I was also, by this point, a columnist on The Times. So at The Times, I was going off and interviewing big stars and doing these big interviews. Anyway. And then at the at Melody Maker, I was still seen as quite lowly. So, you know, I was going off to Seattle with Courtney Love and spending like 14 hours with her racketing around Seattle, you know, gate crashing these parties, getting into fights, taking me back to the hotel, <laughs> like kind of telling me the story of the first time Kurt Cobain took ecstasy and all this stuff. And then I got to the what? end of this just ecstasy well, uh, well what a lightweight we, well we knew about everything else but like the idea that he was taking e All like right, the okay. kind of like the kind of happy drug it was okay. like well how can the world's most miserable man be like on one that's quite weird and apparently he was just staring at leaves in the backyard and then i got to the end of the interview she finally left she was like write nice things about me or i'll blow up your toilet and my husband will shoot you and uh, and then i looked at the tape recorder and it hadn't recorded oh no <laughs> oh second only to sixty-seven thousand words unsaved or deleted oh do you know the margot kidder story no tell me margot kidder lois lane and superman um, uh, had a couple of nervous breakdowns, went through a really bad time and uh, and was quite broke and so started to write her autobiography, got to the end of it, the computer crashed, she lost the whole thing and she had such an intense nervous breakdown, she became homeless for two years. So whenever I'm talking to friends who are writing something, I'm like, don't be Margot Kidder. She did that so you don't have to. Press save, press save. Cold sweat now. I know, right? <laughs> 
Right. Um, so you, so you, so you employed by the Times before um, Melody Maker. So the first big interview you were commissioned to do, uh, who was it with? How did you get the gig? Were you? Um, uh, did somebody sit you down before you went? They said, you know, don't fuck this up, or, or how was it? It's amazing how you never give, get given any advice at all for being a writer. <laughs> like literally none. Like not even this is the toilet. And like so, uh, so I had I'd won a couple. I'd won the Observer Young Reporter of the Year competition, and they'd given me a column through the summer holidays. They were supposed to be publishing six, and they only published five. And they rang me up and they went, we haven't got room to publish the sixth one. We're going to hold it. And I had promised my brother I was going to buy bunk beds because he was sleeping on a piece of foam rubber on the floor. So I was like, I need the money, the Observer. And they were like, sorry, we can't publish it. So I just went to the local news agents, picked up the Times, found out their fax number, faxed this last column to the Times and went, would you give me a job? And they, by the time I got home, they'd rung the house and gone, yes, we will give you a column. It literally took me 20 years to realise that's not normally how people get columns on broadsheet newspapers. First big interview. First big interview. Who was it? I think I went and interviewed, I was really obsessed with Have I Got News For You? And I think I went and interviewed um, uh, uh, Paul Merton and um, Ian Hislop. Yeah. And Ian Hislop was very tall. And uh, Paul Merton was quite grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not really grumpy because he came in here and you think he's going to be grumpy, but he's he's not really grumpy. He's actually quite happy. He just yeah. doesn't smile. He, does, he looks grumpy, but he's not grumpy. I would have made him grumpy because I was a terrible interviewer. Right. I, and I still am a terrible interviewer. I have no questions to ask people. I just want to muck about. So, like, they sort of sat down and I put my tape recorder on the... In the film, I did this. In the film, there's the scene where um, uh, my character is played by Beanie Feldstein from Booksmart and she goes to do the first interview with this rock star, John Kite, who's played by Alfie Allen from Game of Thrones. And she puts the tape recorder down the table and she goes, so, uh, what's your worst song? If you had a pound to spend in a sweet shop, what would it be? Uh, who was the best Beatle? Like, that was my interviewing style. I just, uh, they were terrible questions. So I would have made anybody grumpy. And I would, and I would have talked over them anyway. Do you interview people now? Every, what I do now is I like to follow people around and watch them. And like, so I'll go on the set of like Sherlock or, you know, shows that I like and sort of watch them um, and observe what they're like and in their actual chat lives. To them. Yeah, I'm asking two or three questions, but I think it's just more fun to just follow someone around and see how they work. That's mm. interesting to me. I'm interested in how are you making this amazing? I only go and interview people I like and I want to know how are you making this amazing thing? How yeah. are you protecting yourself? How are you managing to make that work? So, yeah, I just go and follow them around. I'm trying to think of the last one was that I did, but... um I think Amy Schumer, when it followed Amy Schumer around for a bit. Um, but yes, so yeah, I do like doing those features, but I'm a terrible interviewer. <laughs> what if you hadn't read um, The Secret Diaries of Adrian Mill? I would probably not know how to be funny. Um, that is the, if you just need to be injected with how to be funny. And also, it's a working class humour. She's a woman writing a boy. It's... She's stolen a lot of what she knows from Inez bit. There's um in the Bastables and the story of the treasure seekers, she's got that whole thing of the unreliable narrator. So the book's being written by one of the children in this family, but you're not you're not told who it is. But of course the narrator gives it away. So it just goes, and all the children were tried their best, but Oswald was particularly noble, but didn't want to mention it. And like kind of, and that's the the conceit all the way through it. So you can see that Sue Townsend's taking that because Adrian thinks that he's clever and brilliant and noble, but obviously you're constantly having his idiocy revealed to you. And I like humour that's about being a bit of an idiot. I don't want to be attacking anybody else. The joke's always on me. Your favourite line from that, I can't remember what it is, your favourite thought from the whole Adrian Mole. Oh God, there's many. There's, there's Pauline Mole's line. There's, there's only one thing more boring than other people's... Oh God, I can't remember what it is. Other people's... Something like dreams, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. Other people's problems is other people's dreams. And that is true. I've never heard an interesting dream. Dreams are not... Your dream is not interesting to anyone else ever. doesn't matter how incredible it seemed to you. It wasn't real! 
Like it's, it's a made up thing. If if you were telling me an anecdote where you genuinely had been at school naked and then your headmaster had come out on stilts and then Beyonce came and told you she was going to be your best friend, that's an interesting anecdote if it happened. Yeah. If you imagined it, if you just made it up, that's not interesting. It's funny because <laughs> when you said that, when you said the fact that there's only one thing more interesting than other people's... Oh, no, only one thing less interesting than other people's problems than it's other people's dreams. Yeah, I interpreted dreams as the dreams of what they wanted in their life. And I thought, no, that's really interesting. But you meant actual dreams. Oh, no, actual dreams. Yeah, no, no. People who come into the office and just go, oh, I had a crazy dream last night. Yeah, fine. It happened in your head. It didn't really happen. So it's not an anecdote. It's a non-anecdote. non-anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do you think... It's funny, isn't it? Because how old are you when you read Adrian Mole? Um, 11. So I thought he was a very grown-up, sophisticated boy. Yeah. It's interesting with Adrian Mogg, because the first time you read it, you tend to read it when you're young, and you think he he's the hero of it, and you think he's sort of quite sort of a bit clever, a bit noble, like he's a bit of a hero to you. And then I read it again in my 20s, and I read it again in my 30s when I was a mother, and I was like, no, the real hero of these books is Pauline Mogg. She's this brilliant feminist who's going through a divorce and kind of like she's really funny and she's making this all happen. Like, Pauline Mogg's the real hero of this. And as I edge towards my 50s now, I'm like, no, Grandma Mogg is the hero of this book. She's the one that turns out and writes the checks to get the rent sorted out. She's the one that notices the dog's got a pirate stuck in its paw and takes it to the vet and gets it operated on. Like, the grandma is the one that's running the whole show here. So every 10 years you reread it and see something else. It's like my Bible. Well, you say, you're right. It is because like your Haynes Manual again, because you say every 10 years you reread it, you know, every 10 years you write your own version of Adrian Mole. Totally, yeah. We all change every 10 years. That's why it's always really interesting going back and revisiting these things and going, oh, right, now I can see where I've moved from. Those are often the best ways to remember remember your past self is like watching something that you watched as a kid and suddenly going oh my god like you know now I see what this is I watched The Graduate for the first time since I was 16 uh, last week and I remembered it being this brilliant stylish sort of you know about this kind of nebbish boy kind of like going through this sort of crisis and it was really understandable and uh, I watch it now as a 45 year old angry feminist going what so Mrs. Robinson, out of the kindness of her heart, gives Dustin Hoffman a sexual education, says, the one thing I want you to do is not bang my daughter. He immediately goes and bangs her daughter, then follows her around in a really creepy way, telling her they've got to get married. They get married, and then they sit on the back of that bus, both knowing they've completely screwed up and it's not going to work. It's like, if you retold The Graduate now from Mrs. Robinson's point of view, it would be a plot like Fatal Attraction. At the end of it, she would track Dustin Hoffman down and shoot him for ruining her life and the life of her daughter. It would be this massive feminist revenge story. Would you write it? Yes. <laughs> Are you writing I'm it? I'm pitching it now. <laughs> no, it's funny though because you say every ten years you look back and you might you might uh, reread um, Adrian Mole, but I'm, your books are like you know every ten years they are th the next instalment of your Adrian Mole. You fit, you actually write the book as well. Yes, and I started off this book, so the first chapter of this book is me now going back in time and visiting myself ten years ago when I just finished writing How to Be a Woman and thought I knew knew everything. Going, mate, <laughs> I'm from the future. You know nothing. <laughs> You think your life's just about to become elegant and easy and this is going to be the good bit. Uh-uh-uh. That's not what middle age is. I genuinely thought at this age that I'd be having long lunches with gal pals, wearing a pair of elegant linen trousers and maybe putting money into an ISA. That is not what happens in middle age. <laughs> But as, as you mispredict the future, uh, as we're all allowed to do when you're 30-something, can you misremember the past when you're 40-something and did you really think that anyway? I think I did. I have to trust my writing, and I thought that I did. Like, kind of, I'm just very, very truthful in my books. They, you know, when I stopped writing a diary, I started writing books. So I have to trust the me then. I, I've gone back and checked with the me of then, and she's like, no, this is what was happening. You were genuinely this stupid. Things like, 
It's funny, there's such a huge feminist argument about Botox, and I was so convinced at the age of 32 that it was completely unfeminist to have Botox. I was so angry about it, wrote this chapter about it. First of all, I didn't really know what Botox was. I thought that I got it confused with fillers and facelifts and stuff. And secondly, I was young and I didn't need it. And then I had a traumatic 10 years and I looked like a sad, deflated gruffalo. And I'd done all the things that feminists say that you can do to look good, like all these facials and serums and silk pillows and all this stuff. And it costs a fortune and it takes forever and none of that stuff works. And at the meantime, you'd see these beautiful, famous people who we will know, but I won't mention. And everyone goes, when I get older, I want to look like them. I want to age naturally. She looks brilliant for her age, but, you know, she's natural. They're not. They all have Botox. They all have Botox. They have tiny bits of Botox, but every single naturally ageing woman that you know has had Botox. And so I wanted to write about it in this book so that we can be truthful about it. Because if you're a normal woman looking at these beautiful icons who've apparently aged gracefully and look so much better than you, then you are apt to think... I must have a certain amount of gnome DNA because I just don't look as good as these other women my age. And it's because they're all having Botox. So I wanted to be truthful about it. You know, part of being a woman is you need to know the truth about how other people are succeeding. And it's an unfair playing ground if there is so much shame about Botox that the people who are using it aren't telling you. There's some, um, there's some hilarious moments in the book. That's what you're renowned for, your humour. Thank you. And um, as you say, you have to be extraordinarily intelligent to be really, really funny because you have to have the extra capacity to be funny. And when you're tired or you're hungover or you're disinterested or you're distracted, the first thing that goes is your sense of humour because it's the greatest luxury I think a human being uh, can have. Uh, And you need that. And, And you're funny all the way through almost all the way through, you know, apart from where it would be inappropriate to to, to try and be funny. I'm sure you could be wherever you wanted to be. Um, But the, the, (laughs) the story about... (laughs) <laughs> Even you aren't quite sure. You know, do you know, do you know, can is you this, guess? Is this, is this the bath time incident? Yes, it's, yes. The, it's the myth, mystery of the half litre of disappearing bath water over a certain 10 years in your <laughs> lifespan. Um, and you had been aware of this for a long, long time. You hadn't talked about it. You thought about it a lot. Um, and then you decided to mention it out loud, speak it out loud in the actual world uh, on stage one day because things were going so well, what could possibly go wrong? So I was on stage at the Royal Festival Hall. I was doing a gig and I'd never... Usually I've tested material out on friends before I say something on stage because you want to hear your mates go, yeah, 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 you need to say that. But I hadn't told any of my friends about this. So I was just on stage, 2,000 people. I was like, the conversation was going that way. I was like, I'm going to say it. So I was like... Anyone in the audience here have this problem. You go and have a lovely bath. You're soaking in the bath. You have scrub, scrub, scrub. You get out. You dry yourself. You dress yourself. And then 20 minutes later, with no warning at all, suddenly 500 millilitres of still warm and often still bubbly from the radox bathwater comes out of your banana and wetens your pyjamas stroke trousers. Has anybody else had that? And there was a silence for like 10 seconds and then the whole room erupted. And I was like, okay, I'm onto something here. So if you say this to younger women, I did a podcast yesterday with two younger women who've not had children. They were like, what? I don't get it. Anyone who's had kids, they're like, yeah, yeah, that happens to me. Yeah. <laughs> so then so then I started doing it as a regular bit when I was on tour and I was like, well, look, we need to come up with a name for this. Like, you know, my biggest ambition is to have some kind of embarrassing medical problem named after me. So I would be happy if it was called <laughs> Moran's Wet Bum Bum Problem. But have we got any other suggestions? And there were some amazing ones. There was the Punani Tsunami, uh, the Fud Flood. And my favourite one was the Vagina Monologue Flume, which I think... <laughs> 
elegantly describes what's happening in your pants. You won't be able to hear the laughter through the glass outside the studio uh, <laughs> from the team. I told I told Tasha, I ran downstairs and said, it's, it, baby, it's the it's the vagina monologue flume. She went, yes, no, it is. No, it is. Tell her it is. It's exactly that. You know, and my wife, is she's three years younger than you. Um, it's like you've been sent ahead uh, to, to, to do a recce, uh, to look for all the booby traps and the cliff edges and, and the safe passages on her behalf. And Rachel, who works on the show, she's a similar age to my wife. So thank you. Oh, no, my pleasure. I'm a lady <laughs> Sherpa. I like doing that. I think one of the advantages of not going to school is that I started in my career. I'm about five to seven to ten years ahead of most other people my age because I didn't have to go to school. Yeah. I started writing when I was 13. Most people would start when they leave university at like 21, 23. So, and I had my children very, very young as well. So I'm, I, I like the fact that I'm a little bit out ahead of everybody else getting all this life weather in the face yeah. and being able to turn around to the people behind and go, there's a tricky bit coming up. Brace yourselves for this one, ladies. <laughs> Maybe invest in a nicer now. Don't have a bath before you go on TV. I went on BBC Breakfast TV after having had a bath and it came out just as we went live. I had to arrange my pashmina over my lap to cover up the, uh, <laughs> the 500 millilitres of batted ass that had come out of my fununi. <laughs> <laughs> and all these phrases, they're so funny. Um, is this a game you play with yourself to come up with phrases that encapsulate everything perfectly? This is, and, and all my friends, so all I do on Twitter and on social media and with my friends, it's just puns. It's just mucking about with they're words. No, they're better than puns. Puns are dull. I, not the puns I did, because the, 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 the exquisite nature of them, there's two key things about pun. One is that you are trying to go so far and so ridiculous that the, the, you, you've stretched language to a breaking point where it's agonising. That's my sweet spot. And the second one is that when you do a pun, you don't want to laugh. You want someone to groan in pain. That's actually what you want. Yeah. You don't want someone, you just want someone to go, oh, no, that was, oh, that's horrible. No, oh, why did you do that? So I'm always looking for the groan of pain. And I'm now kind of almost kinky in my laugh requirements. I don't want laughter, I want groans. Well, it's funny because you're quite onomatopoeic in life because you talk about oofs quite a lot as well, don't yes. you? Yes. So sounds, you're, you're big into sounds and words. And words are just sort of the 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 the, 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 the T's and C's of sounds. Well, that's that's, the, I think, probably the Celtic thing, like kind of like sort of my family are Irish and Welsh and it's all about, it's quite musical, the language that you use. And I think also when you're poor, all you've got is words. That's the only gift that you can give each other. We never went anywhere or did anything. We didn't have anything. So the only thing you can do is just talk and give each other interesting ideas or, you know, being able to, you know, describe a common object in an amusing way will pass 10 minutes and make everybody happy. It's like, words are magic. Like, it's incredible. My husband was pointing this out. He was saying, like, how magic words are. Like, if you talk dirty to someone, you can make someone have an erection. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, you just, with words, you're changing the body part of someone on the other side of a room. Like, words are powerful. I could say something to you now that would give you a massive jolt of adrenaline because I was horrible to you and I would scare you. Or I could say something really loving to you and you would flood with, um, oh, what's the thing, oxytocin. Yeah, and serotonin. Like, that's, you know, we're kind of, you know, we're dosing each other. Like, humans are going around dosing each other. We're all sort of reacting to each other like drugs. It's very interesting. Um, talking about drugs, so um, you can get natural on uh, your own um, children's uh, supply, natural supply yes. um, of their smell. You're big into smell. Mm. Smell of your kids. Yeah. Uh, love is dot, dot, dot smell. Yes, absolutely. Tell us more. So you must not, how you know, especially with younger women, they're always going, how do you know when you found the one? How do you know you found the one? Is it because the right star sign? And like, oh, you love the same. No, 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 it's smell. Your nose knows what's going on. So you will know when you've met the love of your life and you smell them and they just smell great. 
They just smell brilliant. You can't stop sniffing them. You're huffing their armpit <laughs> like it's a Nox balloon and they get you stoned. And when people go, what is love? It's being very, very relaxed around someone and being able to be silly. Because you are gonna, if you're going to spend the rest of your life with someone and half of that's going to be spent sleeping and then probably two thirds of the rest of it's going to be spent in a car, in a traffic jam, in the rain, going to Cornwall, you need someone that you can just make silly noises at. Like kind of, you know, just you go beyond language and you just want to be very silly and very relaxed with them and just sort of go... <laughs> at each other so love is silly <laughs> love smells great and love must be a tiny bit scared you must be a tiny bit scared about dropping your standards and not respecting that person you know there's the, there should always be the threat that if you if you become an unkind or unpleasant person they will leave um uh that's and so you know manners are important so for instance now still whenever me and my husband have sex after 25 years at the end of it we will both say to each other thank you very much for that sexual intercourse that was very satisfying I think it's important to maintain your standards. <laughs> you talk about the maintenance shag. Yes, that's my friend Sally Hughes's invention, which I've, I've uh, well, borrowed. We, we all recognise that. That chimes yes. very loudly in our house. Well, you need to, right? Because, like, and again, no one really talks about this. Like, kind of, when we see sex on TV, it's all in the heat of the moment, and two people have known each other for twenty minutes, and they're off into a cupboard, or like it's the sort of big finale at the end of a film. Is the reward is the shag? But so it's very different if you're in a relationship for twenty-five years. And like, the thing is that you can go so long, particularly if you've got kids or you're busy, that you can go so long without having sex that the idea of it starts to seem ridiculous. You're like. We would do what? You would start it how? Like, you? no, nah, that wouldn't work. I mean, that'd just be absurd. Absolutely not. So you need to schedule it because for the first 10 minutes, you'll still be going, this is weird, what's happening here? And then suddenly you're like, well, hey, now I remember. Okay, I'm back in. <laughs> and then often once you've had your scheduled maintenance shag for us, it's eight o'clock on a Friday, um, then you often find that you have another spontaneous shag within the next 24 hours because you've remembered how good it is. And then you'll forget again for a while and then you have to have the maintenance shag to remind you again. But these are the things that keep you together. <laughs> Coldly scheduled sex in the diary. Yeah, in the, usually in the morning or yes. mid-morning. Very rarely in the afternoon, never at night. Because you're tired. Like, I'm 45, 9 o'clock is Gardener's World, 10 o'clock is sleep. Like, I'm not going to be upside down. Gardener's World used to mean something else. Did it? What did it mean? Well, of course, if we're talking about we, there was a different kind of gardening going on, wasn't there? What? Oh, sexy gardening. Yeah, exactly, sexy gardening. Oh, right, I didn't know that Yeah, one. so now we spend more time watching programmes about gardening than doing the sexy gardening that we used to get lost in before. I mean, I fancy Monty Don, so Gardener's World is still the sexual experience for me anyway. He's such we, a noble man. Do we talk about the... the um the uh, metaphorical notice that you posted on the back of your bum. Yes. So, anal sex <laughs> is for me, and go with God, everybody out there, if that's what you want to do. But uh, as a child of the 90s, as a ladette, there was enormous pressure to be exploring your bum at all times sexually. It was like, that's what you need to be doing. That's got to be about 50% of your sexual diet. It's got to be up the bum. That proves you're in the 90s. Well, hey, park life. And as you get older, you're like, that's not where the fun stuff is for me. That requires a lot of maintenance. I mean, you can't get away from the fact, and I find it astonishing, Amy Schumer's done a sketch on this, I find it astonishing that anal sex is fetishised by men when there's an undeniable poo element. I mean, this is the place where the poo is. And in order for there not to be poo, you either have to not eat all day or kind of shower inside your bum. And, like, I don't have time. Like, you know, I've got succession to watch. Like, kind of, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> and honestly, if a man is tired of Fanny, he is tired of life. That is... Is a perfectly adequate way to have sex. It doesn't need to be this mad performance. Uh, you know, the fact that we keep trying to reinvent sex, bit of hand-to-mouth stuff, 10 minutes of shagging. 
No more than that because there are chafing issues. Like, think about it. Your sexual organs, like, you wouldn't take two pieces of bacon and clamp them on either side of your nose and then rub them up and down for three quarters would, of an you hour. You would have in the 90s. <laughs> Probably. We were all doing it. We were all at the Met Bar. But you wouldn't rub your nose between two pieces of bacon for 45 minutes. So neither would you put another bodily part inside your vagina and rub it up and down for 45 minutes. I have recurrent UTIs. It's just, you know, 10 minutes, that's your lot. So what was the exact exact wording of the notice? I can't remember. Oh, um, uh, uh, my, uh, my anus wants to thank all of its loyal customers over the years, but it is now sadly closed for business. <laughs> Thank, thank you, thank you, everyone. Thank you very much for all your loyal customers. Have a nice life. Yes, but it is now closed. Good luck with your new supplier. Yes, exactly. All right, let's talk about um, sneezing. Let's talk about um, noises that um, husbands make that fiancés maybe didn't. Yes, so are you, Chris Evans, a loud sneezer? I'm a dramatic sneezer. Ah, fucking knew it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so are you like? Is I the, enjoy a good sneeze. So is there like an overture to the sneeze? This is a common thing. So men, yeah, sometimes like five minutes, almost like there's a storm warning, mm. sort of storm front coming in from the ocean. Five minutes before a sneeze, they'll start. Their faces will start twitching. They'll stop doing what they're doing. Yeah. They'll stiffen in their chair. They'll be like, <gasps> and you're like, what? And they'll go, <gasps> and you're like, oh god, okay, you're going to sneeze, aren't you? And then there'll be five minutes of them going. <gasps> Building the tension. And then it's suddenly like... And, like, when my husband does it, he'll, like, grab me when he's sneezing. Like, he's worried he's going to be blown away by the force of his own nose. He'd be, like, stamping his foot on the floor, like... What? And then afterwards, he's exhausted. He slumps in his chair, like, oh, just sweating slightly. Like, oh, that was a big sneeze. When I sneeze, I'm like this. And it's done. If you pinch your nose, you don't even need to sneeze. It's a, you don't, here's a news flash for men. You don't even need to sneeze. Okay, and it's the same for upchucking then as well. Again, men will spend all morning, I don't want to be all like man flu stuff, because I've written three chapters in the book about what is difficult about being a man. So this is all, this is all done from a place of love and a place of being in a relationship However. for 25 years. <laughs> However, if men feel a bit sick, they will wake and they'll be like, and they'll sit up as if they've received a letter from death himself telling them of impending bad news. And they go, I feel a bit icky. I, feel a bit, I think I might be, I think I might be sick. And then the rest of the morning, there's a wandering around like some mad ghost just going, I'm going to be sick. It's going to happen. And when they finally do it, it's like this three quarter of an hour thing, just sort of. Cry or crying or trying to keep the sick in, like kind of like p hunched over like a dog, just struggling to birth a demon through their mouth. Women, I've been sick on a dance floor in my handbag and not missed a beat. I've been sick at a festival where I simply turned my head to one side and then straight back into the punchline. Like kind of women, I've got a friend who was sick up her sleeve on a bus. Like you can just, we can fit in a vom anywhere. If I know I'm going to be sick in the house, I'm like, well, let's make, let this pleasurable. I'll put a folded towel on the floor next to the toilet. I'll prop Grazia up on the back of the toilet and I'll just simply look through their pics of summer shoes whilst, you know, quick bleh, circle a couple of shoes I like and I'm back downstairs. I don't even mention it. It's it's not necessary to talk about it. So last time we went out for for lunch, I won't say any names, but there is one particular member of the team who happens not to be male. And she says um, after the show, the, de the show after the lunch the day before, a couple of, only a few weeks ago, she asked oh, six, six, oh, six, six times. I said, what, yesterday and today? No, during the show. What? 
during the show. <laughs> yes. Because she just went and sorted it out, like exactly what you're saying. One of the biggest business meetings I've ever had, we went for a very long lunch, and it was the first and last time that I've had oysters and champagne. Turns out they do not sit well in me. I am allergic to shellfish if you drink it with alcohol. As I found out, we went to the social bar afterwards, and I was sick seven times during that meeting. I would just excuse myself from the table, go and be very sick, Quick spray Chanel number five, which is the best perfume for covering up vomit smells I have found. I think that's why probably Marilyn Monroe favoured it. And then back to the table and carried on the business meeting. We signed at the end. I went and had one last vomit and then went home. Oh, no, we had to stop the cab on Parkway and I was sadly sick on a bicycle that was chained to some railings. I regret that. But It's um, funny, isn't it? Because as a bloke, the things you think you're going to get in trouble for doing, um, uh, and you really shy away from them and use them as some kind of currency to, to allow yourself to be scared. Mm. Um Women, my wife particularly, will just, if it happens to her, no apology, no fear, get on with it, move, move along. Well, because it's part of our lives. There's that brilliant monologue in Fleabag that uh, Kristen Scott Thomas does when she meets uh, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character. She's just like, women are built with pain in them from birth. Like kind of, you know, we, the periods hurt every month. You know, having a baby hurts, being pregnant hurts. You know, the, the whole menstrual cycle means at various points, you know, your tits will be hurting, you know, you'll be cramping, you'll be bleeding, like kind of, we're, you know, your vagina is a cupboard of trouble. It's all mental. And so we're just very used to, we're not panicked by pain. It's very, very normal for us. Whereas with men, the only time, and also when we're in pain, often it means that everything's good. You know, if you're menstruating and you're you're cramping, that's good. Your, your reproductive system is working, you can have children. Every time a man is in pain, it is because something bad is happening. You are ill. You do have a virus. You have hurt yourself. So your concept of pain is so different to ours. We absolutely accept it as part of our lives. Whereas you, it's always a bad thing for you. So I think that's why you're so startled, and which is why we must lovingly tell you to shut the fuck up when you're sneezing <laughs> in comic books. Okay, good. Point, point taken. Well made. Um... Yeah, God. Because, you know, we're born into life and we're given the gift of life and then we're told that it doesn't last forever and we're going to die, but we're given the consciousness and awareness to be able to 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 know that that's what's going on. And then we've also, as human beings, been given imagination, memory and uh, language. Um, so we, we're th three up on any other species that's here, which means that we can connect with whoever the real self is and then also create and experience joy and pain, create tragedy or create, you know, situations that have consequences that are all these things, uh, be they bad or good or evil or not. Uh, and then we're also told, by the way, there's two of you and you're entirely different. And what, what one species is called women and the other is called, called men. And, you know, and as if, as if the first story wasn't a head fuck, you know, and why do I feel it's more of a head fuck for men? Am I allowed to own that or not as a bloke? Yes, no, absolutely, because James Baldwin made this point uh, when it comes to race. He was going, if you are white you will know nothing about black people because we do not get to make films, we do not get to make movies, we're generally not represented, you will not be reading about or seeing the black experience. But we as black people, we're watching white people all the time. We know everything about you because we've seen all your experiences, you've made all these movies, you've written all this stuff. Right. So we have right. an advantage because we understand you and see you. You do not see us and understand us. And I think there is a similar thing with agendas at the moment. Like we have, I was brought up on almost entirely male movies, entirely male books, entirely male writers, because that's what it was back then. Um, so I know everything about men. I've, I've read all your books, I've read all your confessions, I've read all your secrets, I know all your sexual fantasies. How much do you know about women? You know, you're learning it now. That's why programmes like I Hate Susie and, you know, and Fleabag and, you know, and Succession are so amazing because you're finally getting to see women making the same kind of confessions that men have made for centuries. So so that's why it's difficult for you. You know, that, that if you are if you are the winner, if you are socially dominant, you are actually at a disadvantage because you don't know what everybody else is doing. But all the people who are below you in the social order know exactly what you're doing. So that's... And which is why 
learning, talking, communicating is so useful. Like kind of like, you know, let's pass this information on before we all die. Let's all get to know each other. What would be your single overarching advice for a neutral bloke? Oh, um, it's asking with, with, questions. Sorry, sorry. With regards to with the officer. To women, sex. ask questions. Just ask women questions. Start really basic. Like kind of, you know, um, what were you scared of when you were a kid? You know, kind of like, what is it you fear most now? Like kind of, you know, shall I touch you here? How do you think I should load the dishwasher? You know, the big things, the little things. We've got all these theories and like kind of, and women have this weakness in that we really believe that you might be psychic. Like the amount of women that I know that are like, you know, say with sex, that have lain there going in their brains, just do this, just do this. I want you to do this. And because the man isn't psychic, he doesn't do it. And it's like, you just need to say it. Like I know couples who've been in relationship for 20 or 30 years who still haven't actually, the woman has not said what she would actually like. She's just sitting there hoping that by a vibe or by moving around in a certain way, he'll guess what she wants. Like kind of, so you're just sitting there, you're not getting this information and we're too scared to say it so just ask us and suddenly you'll have this torrent of information like kind of just ask questions so that's the single uh, very useful thank you i'll take it to, to my grave with me uh, piece of advice for, for any any bloke on the planet uh, what about any woman on the planet oh i think oh god there's so much it, i mean a lot of it is realizing what the voice in your head is and do not be saying to yourself things that you wouldn't say to a friend. Women are so cruel to themselves. The Generally, the monologue that's going on in a woman's head is that she's inadequate. She's too much. She's not enough. She's too loud. She's too big. She's failing here. She shouldn't have, she, she shouldn't have done that. Um, and you wouldn't talk to your friend like that. And my, I, I used to talk to myself like that. And my breakthrough was when I got a dog. And I was like, I'm so nice to this dog. I'm so much nicer to this dog than I am to me. And that was when I started like just going, okay, I must be in control of the voice in my head. I must be kind to myself. I've got to be positive to myself. Um, so yeah, so be aware of the voice in your head. Work out who it is that's saying these things because it's usually an echo from like a bad relationship or bad parenting. And then override that program and talk to yourself in a pleasant and courteous way. And also the past has to keep turning the volume up on the same looping thoughts because they are getting farther away chronologically. So it has to the, turn the volume up to create the illusion that they're still knocking on the door. And life will keep... Keep presenting you with the same problem and the same patterns until you solve it. If you look at the people that you know that are still troubled at our age, they seem to get in the same pickles over and over again, and we get into the same pickles over and over yeah. again, and you will keep, the life will keep, you will keep seeking out the same problem, or life will keep giving you the same problem until you work out why you keep having this problem and you solve it. Or step step aside, like martial arts, step aside. Yeah. And let, let them punch the air, let the problems punch the air. I'm not available to have this to have you as a problem anymore. Yeah, yeah. Does you, that work? You just get tired of it and you just step to one side. I mean, in bad relationships, there's a chapter where I'm sort of, it's a combination of many conversations that I've had with friends who are in sort of bad, dysfunctional relationships. And you can spend decades being angry or sad or scared and all these things and nine times out of ten those relationships only end when you get tired you just feel like you've been stuck in this cycle for so long you just get tired and that's when you leave but it won't be when you're angry and it won't be when you're sad and you'll notice that in your friends like kind of they you know there's just one day they snap and they're tired and that's when they leave but any point before then they they won't go they'll still be while you're still angry you're still engaged while you're still sad you're still engaged all right a couple more things if you don't yes. mind um tell us about the greatest two pieces of advice which are in the same conversation careers advice from a friend of yours when you wanted to be paid more so this is my my uh, very good friend uh stephen tintin duffy uh one of the founder members of duran duran and uh he's always managed himself and his career in the music industry and he came to live with us for a while and he went two pieces of advice with business one big businesses show how much they love you with money 
So time and time again, particularly for women, if you're employed, you'll have people going, we really value you. You're an incredible employee. We really need you. The words mean nothing. If they really love you, they will show you with money. And secondly, no one will ever give you anything. You've always got to ask. So that's it. You just have to learn to ask. And it's really difficult for a woman to go and ask for money. I cried the first time I asked for a pay rise. And I'm very lucky that I have a boss um, who was very understanding about it and had a very big box of tissues. But it's it's so antithetical to everything because you just think you're lucky to get your foot in the door and you're worried you're going to fuck it up for the women who come after you. So to actually go in there and go pay me is such a huge moment for a woman. It's as big as giving birth to a baby. You turn into someone else. But those are the two big bits of advice. If companies really love you, they will show you that they do with money and you need to go in and ask. No one ever gave anyone power or money without them being asked first. When was that? When was that? Yeah. But the pay rise. Oh, God, it was just after I'd had my second child, so 2004. And before that, you hadn't asked for a pay rise? No. No, I, I just didn't even know that you were allowed to. I was still I was still like, I am a kid from a council estate. I have scammed my way in here. I'm going to keep my head down. <laughs> Imposter syndrome. Totally right. And then you just go, well, I've been here 15 years. Maybe they're not going to fire me. But now nearly 30. Okay, so you're not 50, but you've nearly been a columnist on The Times for 30 blimmin' years. Now, that's the record. Yeah. Oh, and, God, is it? And that, well, it will always be a record because you started so young. So long as I don't die, I'll win. <laughs> if you die, you will win anyway. Yeah. Surely, surely that's the ultimate right. prize. If I die, I won't care. Um, this is what you do now. This is it. I have an infinite number of works still to do. I've got a list of all the things I haven't seen, characters that I haven't seen, situations that I haven't seen, subjects that I haven't seen tackled, and that is a 20 or 30 page document just like of, of things and that's what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing so I've got the next three films wow. planned the next five books planned a um, couple of TV shows and stuff and then the columns I do two columns a week so I've always got the ideas for them there's an infinite amount of stuff that has not been talked about it's extraordinary we think that we see the same things over and over again. And we do, because we haven't yet learned the knack of turning to the place where the silence and the darkness and the taboos and the fear is and going, what's in here? Yeah. What can I do in here? And that's why I loved um, I Hate Susie, because there's so many things in that that I have never seen done before for a female character. Yeah. Lucy Preble had a list of stuff she had not seen before, <laughs> and she put it in that show. And there's at least 100 things in that that I've never seen anywhere before. The whole episode where she's trying to, Billy Piper's character, Susie's trying to work out what she's going to think about when she's masturbating. And female masturbation has been done quite a lot recently. And I was like, I kind of, I'm, I'm done for Lady Wanks. I think we've passed peak Lady Wank now. It's been done. This episode is incredible. It's a whole episode. And within it, they use this device as a, a way to go into her backstory. Why does she have the sexual fantasies that she does? To have a huge imaginary feminist conversation with her friend about what sexual fantasies she might be having that are problematic. And for her to try and solve her future, her, her current problems. Like, who does she actually love? What does she actually want? And at the end of it, she just realised she doesn't know what she wants. Her sexuality has just been cobbled together by from other people's desires and things that she has been told by society or by previous uh, uh, partners that are sexy or are appealing or are hot. And she doesn't know what she finds hot. And I think that's very true for most women. There's an amazing book called Three Women by Lisa Today that came out last year. And in the intro, she's talking about her grandmother. And she's saying, my grandmother only ever slept with one person. It was my grandfather. So her sexuality was like a field of wheat through which there was a single path trodden by his boots. And that's if you've only ever had one sexual partner and, you know, in that era, in the 1930s, that is what it would be. You wouldn't know anything else about sex and it would be entirely predicated on what your male partner had told you and wanted to do. So this is a really new era for, for women that we are, we're being asked the question, what do you want? And I think a lot of women go, I don't know. And maybe I actually won't be able to know because I've been so preconditioned by everything that I've seen 
that maybe I don't know what my desire is. Maybe that's for the next generation to work out. Your book, More Than a Woman, um, it's it's not about a midlife crisis. Is that because you cut it off at the pass? It's about a midlife solution. So it's about, it's warning people that if you think midlife is going to be easy, it's not. Because when you're younger, you have the luxury of all your problems being your problems, working out who you are. When you get older, suddenly all your problems are other people's problems. You are caring for all the people who are exploding, parents, children, friends who are getting divorced, and you are the fifth emergency service. And that is what you will do. And you need to brace yourself for it because you are going to spend 10 years basically holding society together unpaid. But then at the end of that, and these things always pass and end at the end, then you are in a new phase of your life where you do finally get to say for the first time, what will make me happy? And I found that it is leading the life of a witch or a crone or a hag. When you go back and read these kind of medieval texts about what the what the wise women would do. They had their familiars, their animals. Uh, they would walk around in swishy coat, uh, cloaks. They would have a staff. They would mix up their potions and their and their tinctures and their medicines. They would tend to their gardens and they would walk in nature. Um, and that's exactly the life I'm leading now. I go and swim in the ladies' ponds every day. I've got my dog that is like my, my second self. I tend my garden. I look after my people. I wear my swishy cloak. I have a stick that I can poke people with. <laughs> and I have an air about me that you must not fuck with me now because I am too old for that shit. As you lose skin elasticity, you also lose the amount of fucks that you give as you get older, and that is the greatest gift. So so it's it's Kate Bush uh, meets Game of Thrones, though? Yeah. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> I have my dragons. <laughs> it's just we don't really... That It feels like one of the reasons why I wanted to write it is we don't really have an idea of what you have available to you when you're older as a woman. Again, we've had so many amazing TV shows the last couple of years about, you know, we've had Fleabag, you know, and all these shows about young hot messes. And it's like, okay, what happens when you stop being a hot mess? What's next? How do you get older? What are you going to do? We don't have any stories about how you keep a marriage together. We don't have TV shows about how you raise children. We don't have songs that celebrate you for coming up with the superlative household roster whilst having a bad back. Like there's nothing about the middle-aged woman's life that is celebrated or represented. And this is how most middle-aged women live. And I just wanted to throw the doors open on a million houses in this country where all these women are doing all this stuff and no one ever talks about them and celebrates them and go, here's your life. Yeah. I'm going to talk about you now because I keep meeting these women at my events and they come up to me and they hunch over and they go, oh, I'm so tall, I'm so fat, I'm too much, I'm not enough, I'm boring you, I'm taking up your time. And I just have to grab them by the shoulders and go, no, you are, you know, you're a teacher, you're a doctor, you're a psychiatrist, you're a civil servant, you are a carer, you are holding this world together. Stand up and take your space. Be proud of who you are. You are amazing. And I wanted to write a gift for middle-aged women going, here's your life. I'm going to make you laugh. I'm going to make you go, yes, that's me. And I'm going to tell you everything I've learned that can make this actually the best phase of your life. What about this as a prospect? So 25, 35, 45, right? Okay. What if 45 to 65 is all quite similar mm -hmm. because we've learned as much as we not, almost as much as we need to learn to be okay? What if it's not as dynamic as the decades that come before it? I'm probably wrong, but, but it seems to me I'm, fi I'm fi nearly 55, you're yeah. 45, and you talk about middle age, you know, when does middle age start? When does it end? Different for different people, I suppose, in different places. But I don't have it, mm -hmm. right? But I have the sense of contentment. Mm. And I think that contentment might be a bit longer than the other phases. 
What do you think? I hope so. Well, I mean, I, as a woman, we're, we're on different scholarships. I've got the menopause to come. So that is, and I've started to get, so I'm perimenopausal now, and I've started to realise what a huge thing. Again, we're bags of chemicals. And I've realised from having had an interesting 90s um, that when you start going through the menopause, it's like coming down off an E. So you're kind of like, oestrogen is like ecstasy. It makes you everything that we think about a woman. You know, we're loving, we're caring, we're going to cry, we're going to be emotional, we're going to hug you, we're going to look after you, we're going to nurture you. That's oestrogen. When you go through menopause and you stop producing oestrogen, it's like coming down off an E. You suddenly are just like, oh, hang on. Why was I dancing and hugging people? Like, oh, no, I feel weird and angry and sad. And what has the last 20 years been like? And have I made a fool of myself? So you turn into something else. I'm starting to get a sense that chemically you turn into something else when you fully go through the menopause so so i reckon i can rinse another book out of that <laughs> <laughs> oh no you've got loads of books in you i'm just see, it's about it's about the sort of the windows and the brackets of, of, of narrative right just before we stop do us a favor um re- read some joyous passages from your book the book is full of everything the highs and the lows the valleys and the tours uh the sun and the rain and the night and the day and all those other things of life itself thank you for for writing it thank you for just, I don't know, I don't know. Thank you for leaving school at the age of 11. <laughs> and not, being, not putting up with the posh girls from the school you may have gone to for the next five years. There's no need to thank me. I'm enjoying it immensely. My it, life has been its own reward. <laughs> isn't it funny, though, because you left at 11 and you started writing properly when you were 13, that, that sort of confidence of total innocence and authenticity wasn't broken by some kind of academic hiatus, which may have curtailed or even you know, arrested anything that you've done. Totally. I've always been able to do what I want, which is so few women can say that. And also I never read any books written by men until I was in my 40s. And I'm really glad I only wrote, I didn't even make it as a conscious decision, but I only read books written by women about women. And the way that women describe women, I can relate to and feel comfortable about. When I finally got around to reading Raymond Chandler or Philip Roth, I was like, shit, if I had read this when I was 13, I'd be fucked. Raymond Chandler's got that beautiful line. She was the kind of dame that could make an archbishop kick in a stained glass window. And that's a beautiful picture writing i know why people love Raymond Chandler. if i'd read that when i was 13 i'd have thought so what that's what i've got to be i've got to be a dame who makes archbishops kicking windows like property destruction that sounds bad what would i wear how would i do that i think there would be consequences from this and i would have been anxious so my one of my big advices to young women is don't read any books written by men you would have been a great beetle <laughs> i would have loved to have been a beetle there would have been five Beatles. If, well, there were seven anyway, but anyway, that's another story. All right, so please leave us with this bit of really inspiring and joyous writing. Um, Catelyn Moran um, by Catelyn Moran. Thank you very much. Through some mad quirk of fate, I am a middle-aged woman who, with a non-perfect body, who still nonetheless likes her own body. My initial instinct on seeing my naked reflection is to wave at myself while smiling. Hiya, I say, whilst waving. How are you doing? I'll wobble everything around to amuse myself. Hurrah, I'll say to no one at all. I can see all the parts of me that belong only in before pictures on articles on plastic surgery, the womble-nosed breasts that point downwards, one larger than the other, my C-section-scarred belly, the mauve hills of my hips and thighs, and I'm fine with it. You've just got to take care of Old Faithful. The idea of hating my body seems incredibly unkind, wildly out of proportion to any crime that it's committed, primarily breaking wind, and yet I know I'm in the minority. As far as I can see, for most women, disliking your body is the default. I regularly read features by women with bodies far smoother and more symmetrical than mine, bewailing their absolute horror at their appearance. 
they talk about themselves with something that borders on terror, even as they stand there looking unbelievably lovely. I feel like maybe I missed out on an important meeting, one where my awfulness would have been officially pointed out to me. I know that if I appeared on, say, Newsnight and cheerfully said, as part of the conversation, I think I look ace. I'm pretty hot. I genuinely like my body. That a huge proportion of the people watching would think, but why? How? And then would take to Twitter to kindly point out to me how, with my saggy tongue and puddingy thighs, I am simply wrong. Of course, it's little wonder that women have so many problems with their bodies when there are so many body parts that are seen as problematic. Indeed, the amount of body parts that can be problematic will grow year on year. For while we still might not yet be able to name the body parts that do exist, we still do not use the word vulva, we appear to be creating names for body parts that don't exist at an astonishing rate. There are incredibly common words and phrases which you come across every day, online, in magazines or in conversation, even though the things they are talking about aren't real. For instance, muffin top. There are 103 million results on Google for muffin top, including the claim that drinking neat vinegar for breakfast will eliminate it, which suggests that the writer is confusing muffin tops with lime scale. 103 million results is weird because... Muffin tops don't exist. It's just your hips and belly in some too small trousers. Knee overhang. I hear the phrase knee overhang. Allow me to clarify. No, it's not knee overhang. It's just a knee. Cottage cheese thighs. They're your thighs, sister. That's just how they be. Bingo wings. I mean, if they were actually wings, that would mean that you would be the next stage in evolution, which would be something to be globally celebrated and not covered with a Matalan shrug. And as for the word cankle, well, even though calling a woman you hate the Archbishop of Cankelbury is momentarily amusing, I think we can all admit that in the long term, by using it, you're just ruining ankles for yourself and everyone else. Dude, Ask not for whom the cankle tolls, for one day after six months in a posturally incorrect wedge and or a good Christmas, it will toll for thee. Women slagging off other women for perceived physical imperfection is like farting in a spaceship. Everyone on board suffers, including she who dealt it. I do not think you can truly love other women if you do not love your own body. It is urgent, urgent work for both yourself and womankind to learn to love your own adorable legs and fully functioning arms. And you must never, never, never allow yourself to start seeing your body as a collection of separate problematic items. Cankles, muffin tops, bingo wings, camel toe. For that is the tactic of a far-right polemicist, dividing the glorious whole into a series of sad, isolated ghettos and then pitching them against each other I can't decide which is worse, my back fat or my bra overhang. It's all you, and it must urgently become your lifelong friend. You have nowhere else to live other than your body. <laughs> Thank you! Way! I've done a read! <laughs> Isn't she amazing? You've been listening to How to Wow, starring Catelyn Moran and brought to you by m and Plan, Plan Kitchen. 
All of our plant kitchen dishes have been developed with a flavour-first mentality at their heart. Think vegan bolognese enriched with miso for an intense depth of flavour. I know I've tried it and I love it. All pizza topped with jackfruit for a smoky taste and rich texture. Oh, yeah! Try our plant kitchen chorizo puppies. Nice puppies, M&S. £3.50. Plant kitchen no beef burger, also £3.50. Plant kitchen no chicken gyoza, £2.50. And very microwavable with a dip. That's MS Plant Kitchen. Proud sponsors of How to Wow. P.S. Please rate and subscribe. Goodbye.